You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session, tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. Good evening, good afternoon, and welcome back to the Spectral Skull Session. I am your host, Dane. Philip K. Dick is probably the greatest American science fiction writer in terms of his influence alone. Born in 1928 and died in 1982, he published 44 novels and 121 short stories in his career. Dick had 12 of his works adapted into film. You may be familiar with Blade Runner, Minority Report, Total Recall, The Adjustment Bureau, and Paycheck. All American films based on books or short stories by Philip K. Dick. The Netflix series Man in the High Castle is also based on the eponymous Hugo Award-winning novel. In addition, an untold number of sci-fi films, books, and series have been inspired, if not directly reproduced, from the works of Philip K. Dick. But many people don't know about Dick's later years. In 1977, at the age of 49, Dick arrived in Metz, France, to give the keynote address at a science fiction convention. There, he thanked the French for their patronage, saying that the French, as well as international enthusiasm for his novels, had kept his career afloat during an era when Americans were not particularly interested in sci-fi. Beginning his speech with the jokey title, If you think this world is bad, you should see some of the others. Dick proceeded to introduce his audience to the idea of orthogonal time travel, the idea that you can move laterally or vertically across time, traveling not into the past or future, but into a parallel reality. And then, no more than 10 minutes into the speech, Dick outlined his new metaphysical theory. I, in my stories and novels, often write about counterfeit worlds, semi-real worlds, as well as deranged private worlds, inhabited often by just one person, while meantime the other characters either remain in their own worlds throughout or are somehow drawn into one of the peculiar ones. This theme occurs in the corpus of my 27 years of writing. At no time did I have a theoretical or conscious explanation for my preoccupation with these pluriform pseudo-worlds, but now I think I understand. What I was sensing was the manifold of partially actualized realities lying tangent to what evidently is the most actualized one, the one which the majority of us, by consensus gentium, agree on. Although originally I presumed that the differences between these worlds was caused entirely by the subjectivity of the various human viewpoints, it did not take me long to open the question as to whether it might not be more than that that in fact plural realities did exist 
superimposed onto one another by so many film transparencies. What I still do not grasp, however, is how one reality out of the many becomes actualized in contradistinction to the others. Perhaps none does, or perhaps again it hangs on an agreement in viewpoint by a sufficiency of people. More likely the matrix world, the one with the true core of being, is determined by the programmer. So there Dick says that the reason why his writing is so obsessed with alternative realities is because alternative realities actually exist, and he's been channeling access to these realities. Many people may find this idea to be disturbing or strange, but let me say one, one of the most respected academic philosophers of the 20th century, David Lewis, he argued for the concrete reality of every possible world in 1986, about a decade after Philip K. Dick. Furthermore, although I'm not a physicist, I do have a vague understanding that many modern physicists take parallel realities seriously. I looked this up on Wikipedia to see that the idea of many worlds being real goes back to the 1950s and was actually popularized by physicists in the 1970s. So I think it's safe to say that Dick was ahead of his time in 1977. What's really astonishing here is not only does he develop a many-worlds theory of four-dimensional space-time, but he also conceptualizes all of reality as being a computer program. In this speech, Dick goes on to suggest that alterations to the timeline are the outcome of a chess match between the programmer and someone he calls the dark counter-programmer, a malevolent but inferior being who is constantly trying to muck up reality. Shifts in reality he speculates, occur when the programmer has to alter the course of time to avoid letting the counter-programmer take history into a dark, dystopian scenario. This implies that Dick's own stories from Man in the High Castle and Flow My Tears, the Policeman Said, are sneak peeks into worlds that might have become real had a benevolent super-being not intervened to change the timeline. I hope the audience has been able to follow this and also grasp how weird it is. And Dick was also aware that it was weird, as he repeats no less than four times in the speech. He knows he sounds crazy, or he knows he has no evidence for what he's saying. But nevertheless, there's a reason why he's going to tell everyone about his new theory. And that is because he himself has had a direct experience of the timeline shifting. Let's go to a quote from that speech. In late February of 1974, I was given sodium pentothal for the extraction of impacted wisdom teeth. Later that day, back home again, but still deeply under the influence of the sodium pentothal, I had a short, acute flash of recovered memory. In one instant, I caught it all, but immediately rejected it. Rejected it, however, with the realization that what I had retrieved in the way of buried memories was authentic. Then in mid-March, month later, the total body of memories intact and entire began to return. You are free to believe me or to disbelieve, but please take my word on it that I am not joking. This is very serious, a matter of importance. 
I am sure that at the very least you will agree that for me even to claim this is in itself amazing. People claim to remember past lives. I claim to remember a different, very different present life. I know of no one who has ever made this claim before, but I rather suspect that my experience is not unique. What perhaps is unique is the fact that I am willing to talk about it. So now we need to take a step back. Dick was given sodium pentothal in 1974. He was having his wisdom teeth extracted. In the 1970s, sodium pentothal was not only used in dentistry, but was widely seen as a truth serum. It was believed that people under its influence were compelled to tell the truth. So for Dick to be confessing to having had this vision under the influence of sodium pentothal would not necessarily have been interpreted by the crowd as evidence that he was out of his mind on drugs. Now, we may think that, but they might not have believed that at the time. In this 1977 speech, Dick says very little about his sodium pentothal awakening, pretty much everything you just heard there, but he writes about it in multiple other places. He told his friends and his publisher about it in letters. He writes about it directly in his fiction. It seems to have been a very important moment in his life. So let me fill in the story here. That story is that Dick went home after dental surgery. He was waiting for his pain medication to arrive from the pharmacy. When it finally shows up, it's being carried by a young, dark-haired girl. As he reaches for the prescription, he can't help but notice that the girl has a little silver fish on a necklace dangling around her neck. And by his own accounts, despite the pain of having come from wisdom tooth surgery, he still wants to delay this girl and prevent her from leaving. So he asks her about her necklace. He says, what is that? And she tells him it was a secret symbol used by early Christians to identify each other while evading persecution by the Roman authorities. And that symbol, in fact, is the Jesus fish. It's two curved strokes that pass through each other to form a crude outline of a fish. The early Christians would find each other by drawing half of the symbol in the dirt, and if their companion understood the shibboleth, they would complete the symbol. They would draw the other stroke, thus forming the fish, and communicating to their companion, yes, I am also a Christian. In one of his many retellings of this encounter, Dick says that after the girl identified her necklace as the Jesus fish, he saw a phosphorine flash of light, and then he was dazzled and perceived an alternate reality. He realized that he and the girl were both secret Christians being hunted by the Roman authorities. And this was the beginning of what Dick would later call 2374, which refers to February to March of 1974. By his own account, Dick began to have a rolling series of paranormal experiences. He wrote that he would see the phosphorine light that he had originally first seen on the girl's necklace. Sometimes he describes it as having been a laser beam. It would pour images into his head. It sounds like he would be zapped by this phosphorine or other times he calls it pink laser beam, zapped in the head, and then he would see things, classical paintings, schematics and diagrams, and visions of alternate realities. At the same time, he began hearing voices. He was worried he might be going insane, but the voices were often helpful. They told him his publisher owed him money, and when Dick looked into it, 
he found that indeed there were many back royalties owed to him. The voices told him to vacuum his apartment, which Dick took to be good advice. On another occasion, the voices warned him that his son's life was in danger. Dick acted on the warning, rushing his son to the hospital and demanding that doctors do a diagnostic on the child. It turned out that his son had a what's called a subiguinal hernia, and his life may well have been saved by Dick's quick action. In fact, uh, Dick's fifth wife, Tess, has verified independently that yes, her husband at that time suddenly acted to get medical attention for their son, and it seems like it was a sort of miraculous uncovery of this uh, latent illness. Now, one countercultural scholar, Eric Davis, who has written extensively about Philip K. Dick in his life, points out that the child had been very fussy since birth, and the family was already concerned about his health. Plus, Dick was an extraordinary autodidact. He had a tendency to pour through encyclopedias and medical journals. It wouldn't be crazy to think he may have come across some information that allowed him to diagnose his son's hernia, but I would say this doesn't really undermine the amazingness of the story about the voices. The first thing you think of is that it's a psychotic episode, a mental breakdown. But the whole idea of a mental breakdown is this. The mind stops doing what it's supposed to do, stops being oriented towards reality and getting things done. And yet, Dick and his family have testified that the voices were helping him navigate reality, saving his son, improving his financial situation, and cleaning his apartment. All practical things. That said, there were also some impractical elements to the experience that Dick was undergoing. Namely, he became obsessed with trying to understand what was happening to him. He seems to have shifted through a number of different realities. At various points, he describes going through a period where he saw himself as an ancient Christian being hunted by Roman authorities. At other times, he reported having a vision of, of an idyllic paradise he identified as heaven. I also found one account where he seems to have uh, identified himself as having shifted back in time and experienced himself as his own father. Dick began writing obsessively about what he was experiencing. Basically working for the rest of his life on the topic, he produced a document. It was several thousand pages of handwritten notes, which he titled The Exegesis. He never published this document, but heavily edited versions can be found in print or on the internet. In the exegesis and personal conversations with friends, Dick speculated that he might be going insane, he might be communicating with ancient Christians, receiving messages from the KGB, or possibly communicating with aliens located on the star system Sirius. I would like to comment about the star system Sirius hypothesis a bit. In an earlier episode of this podcast, we talked about Robert Anton Wilson, another countercultural writer who lived through the 70s and had paranormal experiences in this decade. Wilson also, at one point, thought he was receiving messages from the star system Sirius. Wilson and Dick were both living in the Bay Area at the time, and in fact, we know Dick went and actually spoke to Wilson about what was happening, trying to get some kind of insight from speaking to another person who reported communicating with beings from another star. Here's that quote from Robert Anton Wilson, my feeling about the whole thing was that Phil was questioning me 
about my experiences in an attempt to decide how crazy I was. And he, I think his attitude was if he decided I was crazy, then, he, that I, then that meant he was crazy too. But if he thought maybe I was sane, that meant maybe he was sane too. I think that was what it was really all about. I seem to have passed muster. He seems to have considered me sane, and I think that cheered him up in considering the possibility that he might be sane, too. <laughs> I took that clip from a YouTube documentary, The Gospel According to Philip K. Dick. Anyhow, it seems that Dick was really troubled by his experiences. He didn't know what was happening to him. And uh, when people try to make sense of 2374, um, people usually focus on the paranoid elements uh, something I've left out that should be mentioned. Dick also claims that in addition to hearing positive voices, at one point he heard incredibly cruel voices coming out of his radio in his bedroom, even though the radio was unplugged. His wife says she was asleep and she didn't hear it. Um, Dick has also testified to friends that he became convinced he was going to receive a letter in the mail that would cause him to die. It would be some kind of a triggering event. The letter was going to trigger something in his mind that would lead to his death. It sounds like it was almost a um, Manchurian candidate kind of fear, a fear that he would receive a disinhibiting stimulus that would cause him to act out something that had been programmed into him ahead of time. So this really sounds like paranoia should be noted as well, he had a history of that. In 1971, following a difficult divorce, Dick entered into the San Francisco Bay Area drug scene. Basically, his wife moved out of the house after having an affair. Uh, she had the affair. Dick, now a lonely guy, started inviting young college students and high school dropouts to live with him. He's said to have had a lot of drugs in the house at this time, and he was doing a lot of speed himself. And this all came to a head with a mysterious break-in to his home. He came back to the house one day to find that the house had been ransacked and a safe containing his uh, manuscripts had been dynamited and the manuscripts taken away. He could never figure out who was behind it. The police insinuated that maybe he had done it to himself and he actually considered this a live possibility. Just like in his 2374 episode, Dick became totally obsessed with trying to make sense of what happened to him. Uh, at various times, he blamed the Black Panthers, drug dealers, and the FBI for the break-in. Anyhow, he took this experience as his cue to exit the San Francisco countercultural drug scene. He left the Bay Area, moved to Canada for a brief time, where he enrolled himself in a drug rehab clinic before returning to the U.S. and settling in Orange County. By the time of these events in 1974, um, Dick had completely exited the countercultural scene uh, and lifestyle, although my understanding is that he continued to take uh, stimulant drugs like uppers, uppers speed for the rest of his life. He spent uh, his later years in the 70s and the 80s in the conservative part of California, Orange County. And by the way, if you're interested, Dick's famous book, Through a Scanner Darkly, which tells the story of a drug interdiction agent who ends up tailing himself because he's addicted to a mind-altering drug, the very drug that he's supposed to be interdicting, that book 
um, heavily influenced, according to Dick, by his, uh, his years in that drug scene in the Bay Area. Anyway, I'd like to suggest that one of the best sources for how to think about what happened to Philip K. Dick come from Dick himself. He wrote three novels after the 1974 episode. We call this the Vallis Trilogy, and so it's called a trilogy even though he never finished the third book. The first book is Vallis. Vallis refers to one of Dick's many theories about what was happening to him. It stands for Vast Active Living Intelligence System. At one point, Dick speculated that the Syrians, the, Sir the aliens in orbit around the star system Sirius, were using an ancient satellite network to communicate with him, the satellite being the source of the pink lasers. And uh, he figured it was an ancient satellite that had been in orbit around the Earth for possibly thousands of years. And so he called it Vallis. Um, and he writes his first book in the Vallis trilogy, titling it Vallis. The second book was The Divine Invasion. And then he was supposed to write this book called Owl in Daylight, but he never finished that when he died instead. Um, somewhere in there, he wrote a fourth book that's not part of the Vallis trilogy, although to my mind it is, because it seems like it's on the same topic. It's the transmitigation of Timothy Archer. I don't understand why Vallis, Divine Invasion, and Owl in Daylight are the Vallis trilogy, and the transmitigation of Timothy Archer is not because he never finishes Owl in Daylight. He does finish Transmitigation of Timothy Archer. Um, I went and I reread Vallis. I'd read it years ago, but I decided it was time to reread it for this episode. It is a somewhat confusing, highly autobiographical novel. Philip K. Dick appears in the novel himself, as does his alter ego, horse lover Fat. So the, the gist of this novel is that Philip K. Dick the fictionalized character, has had his psyche shattered because a friend committed suicide and he wasn't able to help her. He also has been receiving visions from Vallis, which he believes to be an alien satellite beaming pink lasers into his skull. He mostly in this book hangs out with some friends. There's a skeptic who doesn't believe in anything and keeps talking about how if there's a god and a divine order to the universe, then how do you explain my dead cat? His cat having been run over in a tragic accident years before. And then there's another character who is uh, kind of like a C.S. Lewis type Catholic who is constantly trying to uh, argue for the benevolence of God. And in the middle is horse lover fat slash Philip K. Dick, who treats himself as two people, but by the end of the novel, we learn that he's really just one person who is having a schizoid personality problem. This novel hasn't been well-received because it's a lot of just dudes sitting around drinking beer and talking about God. But there's an interesting twist at the end. The, the three go to see a movie called Vallis. It's a B-grade sci-fi flick. And in that movie, they see all the things that their friend Philip K. Dick slash horse lover fat has been raving about over the years. And they realize, holy shit, uh, he's been talking about something that's real. So they track down the director uh, and producer of the film. It's the same two people, a husband and wife team, who uh, the Lamptons, they're called. They're rock stars slash directors and producers of movies. So they go to see the Lamptons and the trio realize the Lamptons are 
batshit crazy. They uh, have completely into a lot of woo, psychedelic, sci-fi type stuff. And the three, despite being sympathetic to horse lover fat slash Philip K. Dick's weird ideas, the three people just say, these people, these Lamptons, they're nuts. And we don't want to deal with them, which is a moment of tension in the novel because the Lamptons are talking about Vallis. They made a movie about Vallis. They titled it Vallis. And that's what their friend Philip K. Dick slash horse lover fat has been raving about for years. So if they're just crazy people, how do they know about the same thing that their friend knows about? It gets weirder. They encounter a young girl. She's the daughter of the Lamptons, who is clearly psychic. She knows things about them that no one could know. They all decide that uh, although the Lamptons are crazy, they think this girl may in fact be the Messiah. Um, unfortunately, the girl gets killed by her own parents. Some kind of crazy experiment they do involving a laser leads the child to a premature death. This crushes the trio and their faith in Vallis. But Philip K. Dick slash horse liver fat decides to travel the world looking for evidence that Vallis has influenced human history. Oh, excuse me. One thing about this. As I understand, so Philip K. Dick somehow, if I get this correctly at the end of the novel, he stays home and he's cured. But horse lover fat goes and travels the world looking for proof that Vallis is real. And um, that's, of course, bizarre, impossible, because Philip K. Dick and Horse Lover Fat are the same person. Here's what I want to say about the book. What do you do when, on one hand, you've got paranormal phenomena, right? Impossible coincidences, psychic knowledge of the future. But on the other hand, you've got some stuff that is too far. That is just nonsense. How do you make sense of that? And um, how do you navigate that in terms of your own beliefs? And I think the answer at the end of the book is a, is a turn to history. And um, Horse Lover Fat, traveling the world looking for um, evidence and archaeology to back up his beliefs. So he turns to the past to find something more substantial to base his beliefs on. Now, The Divine Invasion, which is his second to last completed work, is a straight-up wild sci-fi about Earth being controlled by an evil god. So I'm going to skip that. I want to go to the last novel he ever wrote, The Transmitigation of Timothy Archer. This is probably my favorite Philip K. Dick novel, and it's the one in which Dick is most clearly struggling with how do you navigate the space between rigid or closed-minded thinking and wild-eyed true belief. So... This novel is also, interestingly, the only novel he ever wrote from a woman's perspective. And it's the story of a woman whose name is Angel Archer. She's lost everyone close to her to um, suicide or untimely death. First, her husband killed himself. And she's convinced that her husband killed himself because he was in love with his father's mistress. And so the psychological tension there caused him to kill himself. Her father-in-law also dies under mysterious circumstances on a, uh, basically he is so concerned to prove that his son continues to live after death that he gets involved in seances and the occult 
He believes he's talking to his son uh, as a ghost. He writes a book about it, which causes him to lose his job. And having lost his job, he goes on a wild goose chase to Israel, where he dies in the desert. He dies in the desert looking for the uh, true Eucharist of Jesus Christ, which he believes to be a mushroom. And uh, he goes out to the desert without any preparation for surviving in the desert, and he just ends up dead. She also loses the mistress of her father-in-law, who was also her friend, who commits suicide out of guilt. And um, this woman, at the end of the novel, is just like, she's still traveling around uh, alternative countercultural religious circles. So she's on a houseboat listening to uh, a preacher man talk about, you know, Zen enlightenment. And um, I just got the impression reading this book that she was Philip K. Dick, that this is Philip K. Dick speaking, because she's the one who survives. Everybody in the book dies, right? They die either of nihilism or they die because they get so wrapped up in things that are far out and weird. She's the last one left. And she's got kind of a bemused and uh, relaxed attitude towards her own spirituality. She says, like, I don't know why I keep coming to this houseboat to listen to this preacher guy. Oh, I come for the sandwiches. He gives free sandwiches. Maybe that's why I go. And, um, you know, she gets a job. She kind of gets her life together. I would say she still doesn't really have any answers. But the point of the novel is that she's the one still left standing. So she might not have had a comprehensive theory or model of what was happening to her, but she made choices that allowed her to navigate and so that she is still there. It's something that she says herself, like, I'm the survivor. I'm the one who's still alive. So you look at the Vallis trilogy and then Transmitigation of Timothy Archer, and I just get the feeling like it's Philip K. Dick working through his own issues. And I think this is the strongest testament to the the view that he's not crazy. The fact that the man was trying to make sense of what happened to him and trying to find a rational way to structure it, find a rational way to respond to the things he had seen and the places he had gone and the thoughts he had had. And for better or for worse, I think it led him to be extremely creative, creative in a way that he had never been before. So to sort of wrap up this episode, this is another clip from the 1977 speech in which Philip K. Dick, Philip K. Dick tries to rope Jesus into his comprehensive metaphysical theory with his account of a time-traveling Jesus. Here goes. Contemplating this possibility of a lateral arrangement of worlds, a plurality of overlapping Earths along whose linking axis a person can somehow move, can travel in a mysterious way from worse to fair to good to excellent, Contemplating this in theological terms, perhaps we could say that herewith we suddenly decipher the elliptical utterances which Christ expressed regarding the kingdom of God, specifically where it is located. He seems to have given contradictory and puzzling answers, but suppose, just suppose for an instant, that the cause of the perplexity lay not in any desire on his part to baffle or to hide, but in the inadequacy of the question. My kingdom is not of this world, he is reported to have said. The kingdom is within you, or possibly it is among you. I put before you now the notion, which I personally find exciting, that he may have had in mind that which I speak of 
as the lateral axis of overlapping realms, which contain among them a spectrum of aspects ranging from the unspeakably malignant to the beautiful. And Christ was saying over and over again that there really are many objective realms somehow related and somehow bridgeable by living not dead men, and that the most wondrous of these worlds was a just kingdom in which either he himself or God himself or both of them ruled. Christ and St. Paul both seem to say emphatically that an actual breaking through into time, that is specifically what they say, a breaking through into time, into our world, by the host of God, will unexpectedly occur. Thereupon, after some exciting drama, a thousand-year paradise, a rightful kingdom will be established, at least for those who have done their homework and chores and generally paid attention have not gone to sleep, as one parable puts it. We are enjoined repeatedly in the New Testament to be vigilant, that for the Christian it is always day. There is always light by which he can see this event when it comes. See this event. Does that imply that many persons who are somehow asleep or blind or not vigilant, they will not see it even though it occurs? Consider the significance which can be assigned to these notions. The kingdom will come here unexpectedly. This is always stressed. The rightful faithful shall see it, because for them it is always daytime. But for the others, what seems expressed here is the paradoxical but enthralling thought that, and hear this and ponder, the kingdom were it established here would not be visible to those outside it. I offer the idea that in more modern terms, what is meant that some of us will travel laterally to that better world, and some will not. They will remain stuck along the lateral axis, which means that for them the kingdom did not come, not in their alternative world. And yet, meantime, it did come in ours. So it comes, and yet it does not come. Amazing. Wow, what a clip. So we know later in life, I think as he tries to digest and make sense of what happened to him, Philip K. Dick started to turn to religion. And this um, sci-fi Christian version of Dick is often left unaddressed. The scholar Eric Davis comments that um, Christian elements of his later works explain why they're less well-known. And I can understand that. If you're not Christian, you don't want to be proselytized to. And if you are Christian, you may be put off by Dick's wildly unorthodox theology. As for me... I think time-traveling Jesus is a really cool idea. You know, put the truth of it aside, it's extremely creative. And I'm struck by this man who is often very ahead of his time, at least in terms of his popularization of things. Right? So he's talking about the many worlds, quantum mechanics, at a time when the public isn't really into that. So clearly, if um, it was developed in the 1950s and then... The physicists really got into it in the 1970s. It's a thing in the physics world at this time, but the public wasn't really talking about it. Philip K. Dick, however, was. He was a non-scientist talking about the many worlds view of quantum mechanics and taking it seriously. He wanted to find a new creative pro-science way to think about older faith systems. Although he talks most about Christianity, he's also talking about Zoroastrianism and the mystical rationalism of the pre-Socratic Greek philosophers, and Hinduism in this 1977 speech I played for you. Yeah, he talks about Jesus, then he pivots, and he talks about Hindu, the Hindu description of Brahman. 
being the best fit for what he saw when he saw God. So um, this late sci-fi Christianity of Philip K. Dick was very ecumenical, very big tent religion. So I'd just like to end the episode by saying I think Dick was ahead of his time in many ways, and I also suspect that he will be proven to have been ahead of his time in terms of sci-fi religiosity. So I've talked on this show before about my belief that with a widespread use of psychedelics, we're headed for new forms of spirituality. I know that mainstream religion in the United States and really all over the world, all over the Western world is really in decline. I'd like to be on the record predicting there will be religious revival in our lifetime. And that revival will involve sci-fi Christianities and sci-fi Buddhisms, various technological reboots of old faith traditions. And I think we can learn from Philip K. Dick that a sci-fi religiosity does not have to entail a complete collapse of our skeptical thinking. Just as PKD struggled with many hypotheses about what was happening to him and rejected the vast majority, I think we too can entertain new, creative reinterpretations of old spiritual traditions without losing our minds. For the Spectral Skull Session, I have been Dane. Stay strange and stay sane.